Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the, uh, the cooler weather to come. I thank you for your care for us and for your love for us. I come to your word as that which is inerrant, as that which is infallible and absolutely true, absolutely sufficient. It is perfect for every need. I have put my trust in you. because of your kindness, because of your graciousness. And I ask, Lord, that as we dive into our, our passage today, that you would open eyes, that you would grant faith, that you would teach my heart, rebuke me where I'm wrong, Correct me and show me how to walk rightly with Christ and train me, Lord, for righteousness. I thank you for all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, good morning. I know it looks like I'm standing in, uh, in, in the sanctuary of our church, and the reality is, is that I was not able to get the sermon recorded yesterday and so we just didn't even try and so I've come in today it's Monday morning at about eight o'clock and uh, re-recording this uh, because the camera never shows the congregation anyway um, you're not going to see anything different if you have been watching our videos and I felt that it would be more natural for me to, to just stand and, and re-preach even though there's a room of empty chairs out there so, uh, if you would take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 16, we are continuing on in our, our study in Matthew. We are looking now at, at Jesus' conversation with Peter in Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21, Jesus says, or Matthew writes rather, from that time, Jesus began to go to to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is a straightforward conversation. It's, it's not all that difficult to understand what's going on. Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen in just a few months. They're about six months away from the cross and from the empty tomb. That, that phrase, began to show, tells us that this became a topic of conversation on a regular basis. Jesus didn't tell his disciples this one time and expect them to remember it for the next six months. And in fact, we will see in the scriptures as we continue on in Matthew in the months to come, we will see that Jesus raises the issue of his own crucifixion and resurrection again. Peter was disturbed by what Jesus had to say, and he dared to rebuke Jesus. Jesus instead rebuked Peter for having his mind set on human interests not on God's interests. He rebukes Peter for being a stumbling block. 
So as we think about this passage, in order to understand it, in order to have some kind of application for ourselves, we need to think about what it means to to talk about the interests of God. We need to think about what it means uh, when Jesus talks about the interests of man, and we need to think about what it means to get behind Christ. To get behind Christ. What are the interests of God? What are the interests of God? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 21, the interests of God were that the Son of Man would go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. That was the interests of God. Now, we know from Scripture that God's primary interest is the full manifestation of his glory through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal word of God, the perfect expression of all that God is. Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal God to us. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of the nature of God. And that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, which makes him God in human flesh. There is literally no one else who is better suited to revealing God to us. John writes, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus manifests the glory of God in many ways during his Uh, during his earthly ministry and now continuing on in his mediation for us in heaven. But certainly Jesus primarily manifests the glory of God through the exercise of God's justice and mercy. For not even the Son, not even the Father rather, judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, Jesus says in John 5.22. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost, Jesus says in Luke 19. So we we need to talk about justice and mercy. We need to have an idea of what justice and mercy mean. Let's begin with some, some basic definitions. Justice is always that which is deserved. Mercy is always the good which is undeserved. And when it comes to God, the good that is undeserved is his loving kindness. That, that word loving kindness uh, wraps itself around, I think, virtually everything good that God grants us. His grace, his kindness, his patience, his affection, his faithfulness, all of it. God exercises justice by giving his creatures what they deserve, generally in a negative sense, because we deserve nothing good. And God exercises his mercy by granting his loving kindness to those who are undeserving of it. So the the exercise of God's justice requires someone who does not, uh, I'm sorry, the exercise of God's justice requires someone who deserves justice, who has earned it. The exercise of God's mercy requires someone who does not deserve it. Where then does a holy God find people who deserve his justice and who, not, who do not deserve his mercy? So here we can see logically 
that there's a, a need for the creation and fall of angels and of human beings. Satan and his demons only receive justice. They only receive eternal torment in hell. They deserve it. They are worthy of it. They have earned it. They will not be forgiven. They will not be saved. There is no mercy for them. Sinful human beings also receive justice. We deserve justice. We have earned it. We are worthy of it. We have worked for it. And in fact, for a holy God, justice is required. Justice is necessary. And the justice of God makes men and women worthy only of torment. The justice of God condemns every human being as a sinner. But we know because scripture tells us that some human beings receive mercy. God grants them his loving kindness. Justice is not ignored for those who receive mercy. Mercy is not given at the expense of justice. God doesn't set his justice aside for, for one in order to show that person mercy. Rather, Jesus satisfied God's righteous judgment against the elect. Jesus did not die for all mankind. Jesus' death does not make salvation possible. It actually saves Jesus' death does not make reconciliation with God possible. It actually reconciles. And so Jesus did not die for all mankind. If Jesus had died for every sinner, every sinner would be saved because Jesus' death actually saves. If Jesus had died for every human being, then every human being would be reconciled to God because Jesus' death does not make reconciliation possible. It actually reconciles. Now, some argue that this is not fair. Not fair means not just. Justice means getting what you deserve. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves any good thing from God. We only deserve condemnation. God's wrath against the wicked will be poured out against them throughout all eternity in hell. God's wrath against the elect was poured out and satisfied by Jesus Christ. Mercy has nothing to do with fairness. It is always an undeserved gift to those who are unworthy so no one can say it's not right that a certain person doesn't receive mercy. That's not fair. That's not just. It isn't just. Mercy is never just. It's not about justice. It's about mercy. So I want you to think about this. Two questions. Question one, did Jesus die for us before or after we believed? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for you after you trusted him. He died for you 2,000 years ago. Did Jesus reconcile us to the Father before or after we believed? He reconciled us to the Father after or before we believed. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life, Romans 5.10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. Have you been reconciled to God? If you have, you were reconciled 2,000 years ago. That reconciliation was applied to you by the Holy Spirit at a specific time in your life, but it was accomplished by Jesus on his cross 2,000 years ago. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? He didn't say, it is begun, as in now salvation is possible, now salvation can be offered, and if sinners will accept it, salvation can be real. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Everything he set out to do in his death and resurrection was accomplished. Now, I, I hope you stayed with me through all of that. I really do. The, the point of all of this is to say that Jesus came to fully and completely manifest the glory of God. And that manifestation took place on his cross at Calvary and in the empty tomb in his resurrection. All of human history, you can stretch your arms as, as broad as you think you need to and encompass all of human history. All of human history either builds toward the cross or rises from it. The judgment of the wicked was sealed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The redemption of the elect was sealed by the death and, re death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of it came down to that precise laser point within those hours of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And that is what Peter opposes. That's what Peter opposes. Think about the interests of man. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall not happen to you. God forbid it. God planned it. God purposed it. God willed it. The, the triune God had decreed these things in eternity past. The members of the Godhead were in perfect agreement, perfect harmony, perfect unanimity. This is our plan. This is what creation exists for. That moment when the Son of God, having taken on human flesh, would live a sinless life, and then the moment when he died and bore the wrath of God against the elect, sealing the salvation of the elect and sealing the judgment of the wicked. But Peter disagrees. Peter insists that God has forbidden this moment in which all the purposes of God come together like a laser point. Peter insists that God has forbidden this moment to which all of human history has been building. Peter insists that God has forbidden this moment from which every hope of man arises. Peter makes a second confection, but it's not one that came from God the Father. Back in, in verse 16, Peter, uh, Jesus had asked, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are blessed, 
Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. You're Peter, you're a stone, and on the massive rock, the solid bedrock of your confession, I will build my church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about Christians being living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house. I think maybe what Jesus was saying is, Peter, because of your confession, you are the first living stone being built up into this spiritual house I am constructing. But now Peter has made a different confession, hasn't he? God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're no longer a living stone being built up into the, a spiritual house. You're now a stone that I'm tripping over. You're now trying to, to stop me. You're an obstacle in my path. Get behind me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man. Peter was so influenced by Satan that Jesus calls him Satan. It's a terrible thing to be called. And it's because his mind is set on the interests of man. Well, what are the interests of man? What are the interests of man? I think the Bible uh, outlines them for us very well in Genesis chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. The, the first interest of man is to prioritize human reasoning. The woman thought to herself, she decided for herself, that the tree was good for food. God said it was sin, but the woman made her own decision. So God says in the Bible, homosexuality is a sin, but the world says, no, it's not. And God says every sin deserves eternal punishment, but the world says, no, no, that's not true. I recently came across a, a Twitter post by a man who tried to visit Peterborough Cathedral in England. It's a, a, a Church of England cathedral, an Anglican cathedral. And he, he posted this, tried to visit Peterborough Cathedral. It's being used for a life-sized rubber dinosaur exhibition, so this is as far as I was allowed to come without a dinosaur ticket. Now notice what he says. Dinosaur mating cries and roars were broadcast on a constant loop around the cathedral to help people pray. To help people pray. Why is this happening at Peterborough, England? It's because some fool somewhere discarded the word of God, discarded what God commands, and says, I'll use my own reasoning. The, the, the mating calls of dinosaurs will help people pray. The second interest of man, the second interest of man, sorry, the second interest of man is, the, the, uh, is to measure everything by the senses. To measure everything by the senses. The fruit was a delight to the eyes. She was delighted by it. This is sensuality. It's the belief that what we really need is having our senses satisfied. That life is about having our senses gratified. 
Uh, even churches do this. When you find incense and bells and stained glass and certain types of music and a certain kind of atmosphere, they're simply trying to satisfy people. Now, we use air conditioning. We have a roof. We have lighting. We have relatively comfortable chairs because they're, they're, we are physical creatures. There's a certain amount of, of our physical nature that we simply can't ignore. I'm talking about churches that, that pander to the senses and not to the heart, not to the soul, not to the mind, just to the senses. The third interest of man is the worship of self. Eve decided that the fruit would make her wise. She decided she would be better if she disobeyed God. It was better for her, and she would be a better person if she disobeyed God. Our world obviously worships at the altar of self. The whole issue of preferred pronouns today comes down to one person demanding that the rest of the world bow before their altar to themselves. False teachers abound in the church because so many gravitate toward false teachings that affirm self and make people happy. It's, it's the, the reason that a book like Purpose Driven Life or Your Best Life Now are so popular and they sell so well is because they exalt the human and they make God a servant of man. What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What are your desires? That's all God wants. That's what he's about. That's what his interests are. So Peter decided that his reasoning was better than God's reasoning. God has forbidden this. Peter decided that his senses ruled everything. He didn't feel good about what Jesus said. It was offensive to him. And so it couldn't be true, couldn't be right. Jesus, Peter worshipped himself first, and he expected the Lord to get behind him. God forbid it, Lord, it will not happen to you now. You get in line behind me. I know it's right. And so Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. He doesn't just rebuke Peter's idea. He rebukes Peter personally. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus speaks so bluntly that it sounds harsh, and he makes no attempt to spare Peter's feelings. Peter was trying to obstruct the glory of God, and the Son of God wasn't, wasn't having any of it. <coughs> years ago, at a church I pastored, several of us worked on a, a plan for the next several years at the church, and the plan basically was going to focus on discipleship, evangelism, and fostering a culture of service within the church. A prominent man in the church said about those goals, and I quote, quote, I don't know if any of that is biblical, unquote. He didn't know if discipleship, evangelism, and fostering a culture of service within the church was a biblical goal. In part, this man simply wanted to be first. He was offended that he was not part of the planning process. He was offended that he was not consulted. But his focus was always on making people feel good about themselves, making them happy. As long as it was him doing the work, he could get behind it. 
and he only did the work that made people feel good and that brought him approval. The church existed in his mind to make people feel happy and content and to give them a good experience. He denied the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian and to be a church, to be involved in discipleship and evangelism and service. So Peter got in Jesus' way. He made himself an obstacle to the glory of God. That's a bad place to be. It's bad to be in in God's way when he's on the move. Jesus essentially told Peter to get out of his way. Stop trying to trip me up. Stop trying to change my course. Peter needed to get behind Jesus. He needed to get out of the way. He needed to stop being a stumbling block and an obstacle and instead be a servant of Christ and a servant of the interests of God. As we think about bringing this home then, we need to get behind Christ and serve him and his interests what does that mean in practical terms? Well, let me give you three thoughts. First of all, the world constantly demands that we stifle our own views and beliefs and embrace its values. And if we do that, we become an obstacle, a stumbling block in the way of God's purposes. It's tragic, but the world is convinced tens of millions of Christians or hundreds of millions of Christians that the best witness to Jesus Christ is no witness at all. There's a saying, and I I can't remember exactly how the first part of it goes, but it, it essentially says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. See, that saying is a stumbling block. You cannot preach the gospel without preaching the gospel. But the world says, the worldly thinking, it doesn't matter if it was a Christian who came up with it, it's worldly thinking, it's obstacle thinking. The world says, don't point out sin, don't proclaim the gospel, don't talk about holiness or judgment. Just talk about love. Well, love speaks the truth in love, and love puts Jesus before the world. Love prefers Jesus before it prefers the world. The second thing to think about is that our own sinful flesh wants to argue and debate the will of God. Some will say that the will of God is hard to understand and confusing. That's not true. It's just hard to accept. Now, I don't know what the will of God is for your particular situation at 2.15 this afternoon. But the Bible is full of what God calls you to do. He calls you to flee youthful lusts. He calls you to be holy as he he is holy. He calls you to love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, tolerate one another, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. He calls you to be godly husbands and godly wives and godly men and godly women. He calls children to obey their parents. He calls fathers not to exasperate and provoke their children to anger. The will of God is all through Scripture. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to accept because it contradicts our natural senses, our natural desires. But there's no following Christ if we take the side of our own flesh in that debate. The third thing I want you to think about is that we have to regularly come to the Scriptures and be renewed in the thinking of our minds. There is a direct connection, a direct relationship between your time in the word and your ability to get behind Jesus instead of being an obstacle to his work. It takes time to grow, but that time in the scriptures is necessary. 
You see, you will not speak what you have not read, and you will not trust what you do not believe, and you will not confess what you do not submit to, and you cannot read and believe and submit to what you don't know. You have to be in the Word on a consistent basis, on a regular basis. Beloved, Jesus doesn't want us out of the picture. Get behind me doesn't mean go away. He wants us properly related to him. He wants us properly behind him, following him as he works, as he accomplishes his purpose on earth. He wants us to follow him and not attempt to lead him. He wants us to glorify him and not ourselves or others. And he wants, us to, he wants to show himself strong on behalf of us when we are following him, when we are rightly related to him. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I love your word. I love the opportunity to, to speak it, to teach it. And to even rehearse these words again in my own mind as, as I re-record this sermon. And I ask for myself and I ask for those who hear this that, that you would grant us continued mercy, your continued loving kindness. I ask, Lord, that you would cause your gospel to be large in our hearts and loud in our voices. Grant us fearlessness as we follow Christ. He doesn't send us out by ourselves. He has promised to be with us. You have promised to be with us, and you've sent your spirit to be in us. I thank you for this day, and I praise your holy name. Amen.